0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of rheumatoid arthritis from the basic science section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic systemic autoimmune disease caused by an IgM cell-mediated immune response against soft tissues, cartilage, and bone. Patients present with insidious onset of morning joint stiffness, polyarthropathy, subcutaneous nodules with progressive hand and wrist deformity. Diagnosis is made with a combination of physical examination, characteristic radiographs, and labs to evaluate for the presence of rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP antibodies. Treatment is primarily medical management with NSAIDs, DMARDs, otherwise known as disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, biologics, anti-malarials, and steroids. Now let's get into the episode. As far as the epidemiology, rheumatoid arthritis is the most common form of inflammatory arthritis. And as far as the demographics, it affects 3% of women and 1% of men. Now let's talk about the pathophysiology of rheumatoid arthritis. We'll go over the immunology and the pathoanatomy. So as far as the immunology, rheumatoid arthritis is a cell-mediated, specifically T-cell MHC type 2 immune response against soft tissues in the early stage, cartilage in the later stage, and bone in the later stage. Rheumatoid factor is an IgM antibody against native IgG antibodies. An immune complex is then deposited in the end tissues, like the kidney, as part of the pathophysiology. Mononuclear cells are the primary cellular mediator of tissue destruction in rheumatoid arthritis. IL-1 and TNF-alpha are part of the cascade that leads to joint damage. The immune response in rheumatoid arthritis is thought to be related to infectious etiology or an HLA locus. Now let's talk about the pathoanatomy. So the cascade of events in rheumatoid arthritis includes antigen, antibody, and antibody-antibody reactions, then microvascular proliferation and obstruction, then a synovial panis formation where the histology shows prominent intimal hyperplasia, then joint subluxation, chondrocyte death-slash-joint and deformity and then finally tendon tenosynovitis and rupture. As far as the genetics, rheumatoid arthritis is associated with specific HLA loci, that is HLA-DR4 and HLA-DW4. There's an approximately 15% rate of concordance amongst monozygotic twins. As far as associated medical conditions and comorbidities with rheumatoid arthritis, these include things like rheumatoid vasculitis, pericarditis, pulmonary disease, Felty's syndrome, which is rheumatoid arthritis with splenomegaly and leukopenia, Stills' disease, which is acute onset of rheumatoid arthritis with fever, rash, and splenomegaly, and Sjogren's syndrome, which is an autoimmune condition affecting the exocrine glands, and it's characterized by decreased secretions from salivary and tear duct glands, as well as lymphoid tissue proliferation. Now let's talk about the presentation of rheumatoid arthritis. As far as the symptoms, rheumatoid arthritis has an insidious onset of morning stiffness and polyarthropathy. It usually affects the hands and the feet. And keep in mind that the DIP joint of the hand is usually spared, and it may also affect the knees, cervical spine, elbows, ankle, and shoulder. On physical exam, you may find subcutaneous nodules in 20% of patients, and this percentage has a strong association with positive serum rheumatoid factor. You may also find ulnar deviation with metacarpophalangeal subluxation, swan neck deformity, hallux valgus, claw toes, and metatarsophalangeal subluxation. Finally, keep in mind that joints become affected at later stages in the disease process. As far as imaging, radiographs may show periarticular erosions and osteopenia, protrusio acetabuli, which is medial migration of the femoral head past the radiographic teardrop, Keep in mind, this can also be seen in Marfan syndrome, Paget's disease, Otto's pelvis, and other metabolic bone conditions. Radiographs in rheumatoid arthritis may also show joint space narrowing and central glenoid erosion. As far as other studies to obtain, specifically labs, you should obtain an anti-CCP, which is a cyclic citrullinated peptide, which is the most sensitive and specific test for rheumatoid arthritis. Again, the anti-CCP or cyclic citrullinated peptide is the most sensitive and specific test for rheumatoid arthritis. Other labs include an anti-MCV, which is a mutated citrullinated vimentin. You will find an elevated ESR and an elevated CRP in these patients. You may find a positive RF titer, which is most commonly IgM. And keep in mind that this targets the FC portion of IgG and it's elevated in 75 to 80% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Finally, joint fluid testing may reveal decreased complement, and they may have elevated rheumatoid factor levels. The diagnostic criteria for rheumatoid arthritis is the 1987 revised criteria for diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, and this includes morning stiffness greater than or equal to one hour, swelling in greater than or equal to three joints, rheumatoid nodules, radiographic changes of the hand including bony erosions and decalcification, symmetric arthritis, serum rheumatoid factor, and arthritis of the hand, specifically MCP, PIP, and the wrist. Patients should have greater than or equal to 4 out of the 7 criteria for a 6-week period. Treatment of rheumatoid arthritis can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes pharmacologic treatment, which is the mainstay of treatment. As far as medications, first-line medications include NSAIDs, anti-malarials, remittant drugs like gold sulfasalazine and methotrexate, steroids, and cytotoxic drugs. A more aggressive approach with DMARDs, or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, is now favored over the pyramid approach. As far as outcomes of pharmacologic treatment, significant advances in pharmacologic management have significantly changed the prognosis of the disease. As far as operative options, operative treatment is of course dictated by a specific condition. Again, significant advances in pharmacologic management have led to a decrease in surgical intervention. However, in the setting that you do pursue surgical intervention, it's important to obtain preoperative cervical spine radiographs. Now let's talk about pharmacologic management of rheumatoid arthritis in a bit more detail. The first line is low-dose corticosteroids. The second line is disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, or DMARDs. This includes drugs like methotrexate, which is a folate analog with anti-inflammatory properties linked to inhibition of neovascularization and has therapeutic effects that are increased when combined with tetracyclines due to the anti-collagenase properties. Another DMARD is leflunomide, which is an inhibitor of pyrimidine synthesis. Sulfasalazine is another DMARD, However, the exact mechanism is unknown, but it is associated with a decrease in ESR and CRP. Hydroxychloroquine is another disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, and it blocks the activation of toll-like receptors, which decreases the activity of dendritic cells, thus mitigating the inflammatory process. Other DMARDs include drugs like D-penicillamine. The third line of pharmacologic management of rheumatoid arthritis include biologic agents slash TNF antagonists. So these include drugs like Etanercept or embril, which is a TNF-alpha receptor fusion protein, specifically TNF type 2 receptor fused to IgG, the FC portion, that binds to TNF-alpha. Another third line medication is Infliximab or Remicade, which is a human mouse chimeric anti-TNF-alpha monoclonal antibody. Adalimumab or Humira is another third-line medication that is a human anti-TNF alpha monoclonal antibody. Golimumab or Simponi is another third-line medication that is another human anti-TNF alpha monoclonal antibody. And finally, certolizumab or Simzia is another third-line medication that is a pegylated human anti-TNF alpha monoclonal antibody. Finally, fourth-line medications include DMARD biologic agents IL-1 antagonists, and these include medications like anakinra or kineret, which is a recombinant IL-1 receptor antagonist. Other biologic agents include rituximab or rituxan, which is a monoclonal antibody to CD20 antigen, which inhibits B cells. Abatacept or Orencia, which is a selective co-stimulation modulator that binds to CD80 and CD86, which inhibits T cells. Ustekinumab or Stelara is a monoclonal antibody targeting IL12 and IL23. And finally, tocilizumab or Actemra is an IL6 receptor inhibitor, which is a second-line treatment for poor response to TNF antagonist therapy. So now let's quickly talk about perioperative medications in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis and when to stop slash restart these medications. So NSAIDs should be stopped five half-lives before surgery. So for example, stop aspirin seven to 10 days before. As far as steroids, dosing depends on the level of potential surgical stress. Methotrexate should be continued Leflunomide should be continued for minor procedures; however, should be stopped one to two days before major procedures, and then should be restarted one to two weeks after. Sulfasalazine and hydroxychloroquine can be continued. Use to should be stopped one week prior to the procedure, and then restarted after 14 days postoperatively. TNF antagonists like Etanercept, Infliximab, and Adalimumab should be continued for minor procedures but make sure to stop etanercept two weeks before major procedures. Try to plan surgery at the end of the dosing interval for adalibumab and infliximab and restart all of them 10 to 14 days after. IL-1 antagonists like anakinra should be continued for minor procedures, but should be stopped one to two days before major procedures and should be restarted 10 days after. Finally, rituximab should be stopped seven months before major surgery. So now let's talk about different specific conditions in rheumatoid arthritis. We'll start with cervical spondylitis. And cervical spondylitis includes atlantoaxial subluxation, basilar invagination, and subaxial subluxation. These are all topics that we go into more detail in other podcast episodes. Moving on to finger conditions, we'll talk about rheumatoid nodules, arthritis mutilans, ulnar drift at the MCP joint, boutonniere deformity, and a swan neck deformity. So as far as rheumatoid nodules, these are the most common extra-articular manifestation of rheumatoid arthritis. They are seen in 25% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and are associated with aggressive disease. These are an extra-articular process found over the IP joints, over the olecranon, and over the ulnar border of the forearm. As far as the prognosis of rheumatoid nodules, erosion through the skin may lead to formation of a sinus tract. As far as presentation, patients complain of pain and cosmetic concerns. Treatment of rheumatoid nodules can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes steroid injection, and operative management includes surgical excision. The indications include cosmetic concerns, pain relief, and or a diagnostic biopsy. Moving on to arthritis mutilans, this is seen in patients with rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. The digits develop gross instability with bone loss, that is specifically a pencil in cup deformity or wind chime fingers, and these are treated with interposition, bone grafting, and fusion. Ulnar drift at the MCP joint is a volar subluxation associated with ulnar drifting of the digits. As far as the pathoanatomy, it starts with joint synovitis and then radial hood sagittal fiber stretching with concomitant volar plate stretching, then extrinsic extensor tendons that subluxate ulnarly, then lacks collateral ligaments that allow ulnar deviation deformity, then ulnar intrinsics contract further worsening the deformity, then wrist radial deviation further worsens, and then finally the flexor tendon eventually drifts ulnarly. As far as the presentation of ulnar drift at the MCP joint, patients will have an extensor lag at the level of the MCP joint. Treatment of ulnar drift at the MCP joint is usually operative and this can include synovectomy, extensor tendon centralization, and intrinsic release, which is indicated in early disease. And MCP arthroplasty, specifically a silicone MCP arthroplasty is the most common, and this is indicated for late disease, thumb MCP involvement plus thumb IP involvement. And as far as the techniques for MCP arthroplasty, it's important to correct the wrist deformity at the same time if it's radially deviated. The technique includes synovectomy, volar capsular resection, ulnar collateral ligament release, radial collateral ligament repair reconstruction, extensor tendon realignment, and intrinsic tendon release. As far as outcomes of MCP arthroplasty, the ultimate function is less predictable. However, overall patient satisfaction is 70%. One-year follow-up shows improved ulnar drift and extensor lag. Complications include infection, implant failure, and or deformity recurrence. MCP fusion is another potential treatment option for ulnar drift at the MCP joint, and indications include thumb MCP involvement without IP involvement. Moving on to boutonniere deformity in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis, the pathoanatomy involves synovitis of the PIP, which leads to central slip and dorsal capsule attenuation. The pathoanatomy also involves increasing PIP flexion, lateral bands that subluxate volar to the axis of rotation of the PIP, and the oblique retinacular ligament contracture causes extension contracture of the DIP. Treatment of a boutonniere deformity in rheumatoid arthritis can be splinting for a flexible PIP, extensor reconstruction that is a central slip imbrication or a Fowler distal tenotomy for moderate deformity, or a PIP arthrodesis or arthroplasty for rigid contractures. Moving on to a swan neck deformity in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis, the pathoanatomy involves terminal tendon rupture from the DIP synovitis, which leads to DIP flexion slash PIP hyperextension. The pathoanatomy also involves FDS, volar plate, and collateral ligament attenuation from synovitis, which leads to decreased volar support of the PIP and hyperextension deformity. The lateral band subluxate dorsal to the PIP axis of rotation, And then finally, there'll be contracture of the triangular ligament and attenuation of the transverse retinacular ligament. Treatment of a swan neck deformity in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis can be splinting for a flexible PIP to prevent hyperextension, FDS tenodesis or proximal fowler tenotomy for flexible PIP and failed splinting, and finally, dorsal capsule release, lateral band mobilization, collateral ligament and intrinsic release, and extensor tenolysis for rigid deformities. Okay, so now let's go over thumb conditions in rheumatoid arthritis in a bit more detail. And to do this, we'll go over the Nelbuff classification of rheumatoid thumb deformities, and there are six types. Type 1 is a boutonniere deformity, which is the most common deformity that involves MCP flexion and IP extension. Treatment of a stage 1 type 1 thumb deformity in rheumatoid arthritis involves synovectomy with extensor hood reconstruction. Treatment of stage 2 involves MCP fusion or arthroplasty, and treatment of stage 3 involves IP and MCP fusion if the CMC joint is normal, and an IP fusion and an MCP arthroplasty if the CMC is diseased. A type 2 rheumatoid thumb deformity is a boutonniere deformity with a CMC subluxation. This is uncommon and the deformity is primarily at the CMC joint. The treatment for a type 2 rheumatoid thumb deformity is the same as type 1. A type 3 rheumatoid thumb deformity is a swan neck deformity, which is MCP hyperextension and IP flexion. Treatment of a stage 1 type 3 rheumatoid thumb deformity is splinting versus CMC arthroplasty. Treatment of stage 2 is an MCP fusion, and treatment of a stage 3 is MCP fusion with a first web release. A type 4 rheumatoid thumb deformity is a gamekeeper deformity, which is metacarpal adduction and radial deviation of P1 with a lax volar plate and UCL. Stage 1 of a type 4 rheumatoid thumb deformity is when the deformity is passively correctable, and the treatment is synovectomy, UCL reconstruction, and adductor fascial release. Stage 2 of a type 4 rheumatoid thumb deformity is a fixed deformity, and treatment involves MP arthroplasty or fusion. A type 5 rheumatoid thumb deformity is a swan neck deformity with MCP disease, specifically MCP volar plate laxity. And as far as treatment, the MP is stabilized in flexion by volar capsulodesis. Finally, a type 6 rheumatoid thumb deformity is skeletal collapse or arthritis mutilans, and this will involve MCP volar plate laxity. And the treatment is a combination of arthrodesis. Moving on to flexor tendon conditions in rheumatoid arthritis, we'll talk about triggering, Mannerfeld syndrome, FDP rupture, and FDS rupture. As far as triggering in rheumatoid arthritis, treatment is synovectomy plus resection of the FDS. Mannerfeld syndrome is a rupture of the FPL, which is the most common flexor rupture, and this occurs in the carpal tunnel due to a scaphoid spur. Treatment options include an FDS4 to FPL tendon transfer, Plus excision of scaphoid spurs, however, this may also lead to rupture of the index FDP2. Other treatment options for Mannerfeld syndrome include tendon graft plus spur excision and IP joint fusion for advanced disease. Treatment for FDP rupture is synovectomy plus DIP fusion. And finally, treatment for an FDS rupture is observation. Okay, moving on to extensor tendon conditions in rheumatoid arthritis, we'll talk about extensor tendon rupture, radial sagittal band failure, von Jackson syndrome, and differentials for loss of digital extension. So as far as extensor tendon rupture, the most frequent extensor tendon rupture is the EDM, then the EDC of the ring finger, then the EDC of the small finger, and then the EPL. Treatment is tendon transfer, interposition graft, or a Darix procedure. In a radial sagittal band failure, extensor tendons migrate and slip into the ulnar gutter and volar to the center of rotation of the MCP joint. On physical exam in these patients, they will lose active extension, and if the MCP is placed in extension actively, then the patient can hold it extended. Treatment of a radial sagittal band failure is sagittal band reconstruction, specifically an extensor hood reconstruction. Von Jackson syndrome is rupture of the digital extensor tendons from ulnar to radial. The pathoanatomy involves DRUJ instability plus volar carpal subluxation that results in dorsal ulnar head prominence and attritional rupture of the extensor tendons. Keep in mind that the EDM is the first extensor ruptured. The treatment of Von Jackson syndrome is an EIP to EDC transfer and distal ulnar resection. Finally, some differentials for loss of digital extension. These include PIN neuropathy, extensor tendon rupture, extensor tendon subluxation, specifically torn radial sagittal band, MCP volar subluxation, and trigger finger. Now, let's quickly talk about some common tendon transfers in rheumatoid arthritis. So, for a ruptured EPL, the tendon transfer is an EIP to EPL. Again, for a ruptured EPL, the tendon transfer is an EIP to EPL. In the setting of a ruptured extensor digiti quinti, you will leave this alone. For a ruptured extensor digiti quinti and an EDC-5, the tendon transfer will be an EIP to an EDC-5 or an extensor digiti quinti to EDC piggyback transfer. In the setting of a ruptured extensor digiti quinti, EDC-5 and EDC-4, the tendon transfer will be an EIP to extensor digiti quinti and EDC-4 side to side to EDC3. Finally, in the setting of a multiple tendon rupture, the treatment is using a palmaris graft and FDS. Now let's talk about some risk conditions in rheumatoid arthritis, and we'll talk about kaput ulnar syndrome and radiocarpal destruction. So, the pathoanatomy of kaput ulnar syndrome is synovitis in the DRUJ, then ECU subsheath stretching, then ECU subluxation then supination of the carpal bones away from the head of the ulna, then volar carpal subluxation, then increased pressure over the extensor compartments, and then finally tendon rupture. It's important to distinguish Kaput ulna syndrome from extensor lag caused by PIN compression neuropathy, which is seen in rheumatoid arthritis due to elbow synovitis. The treatment of Kaput ulna syndrome is a Darroch distal ulna resection. Keep in mind, you must also relocate the ECU dorsally, with a retinacular flap, or perform an ECU stabilization of the ulna. Other treatments of Kaput ulna syndrome include an ulnar hemiresection and a Sov-Capanji procedure or an ulnar pseudoarthrosis. This option has the advantage of preserving the TFCC and is a good option for younger patients. Moving on to radiocarpal destruction, the pathoanatomy involves synovitis and capsular distension, which leads to supination, radial deviation, as well as angulation of the carpus. The pathoanatomy also involves ulnar and volar translocation of the carpus on the radius, with scaphoid flexion, radial lunate widening, and lunate translocation ulnar words. There will also be secondary radioscaphoid arthrosis, and finally ulnar deviation of the fingers at the MP joints, creating the classic zigzag deformity. Treatment of radiocarpal destruction in rheumatoid arthritis can include synovectomy, which is indicated in early disease, and the technique involves transfer of the ECRL to the ECU to diminish deforming forces, and this is known as Clayton's procedure. Other options include a radiolunate fusion, or Chimay, or a lunate fusion, and this is indicated for intermediate disease with a preserved midcarpal joint. A wrist fusion is another option, and this is indicated for advanced disease with poor bone stock. However, this remains the gold standard and is often combined with the Darroch procedure. Finally, a total wrist arthroplasty is indicated for sedentary patients with good bone stock, and the advantages of total wrist arthroplasty over fusion is motion and tends to be best in patients with reasonable motion pre-op. Okay, moving on to elbow conditions in rheumatoid arthritis, the one to know is rheumatoid elbow, and this can be treated non-operatively or operatively. Non-operatively, rheumatoid elbow is mainly managed with medical management and cortisone injections. Operative options include synovectomy and radial head excision, interposition arthroplasty, and total elbow arthroplasty. With a synovectomy and radial head excision, the focus of degeneration is in the radial humeral joint. Keep in mind that you can have posterior interosseous nerve compression secondary to radial head synovitis. Indications for synovectomy and radial head excision is when the focus of degeneration is in the radiohumeral joint or when posterior interosseous nerve compression is secondary to radial head synovitis. A synovectomy and radial head excision is performed through a lateral approach to the elbow. An interposition arthroplasty is indicated for young active patients who are not candidates of total elbow arthroplasty. The technique involves resection and contouring of the humeral surface, covering the humeral surface with cutis autograft, Achilles tendon, fascia, or dermal allograft. Keep in mind that some use a distraction external fixator to unload the membrane and enhance its bonding to bone and improve motion. Remember that interposition arthroplasty results are less predictable than total elbow arthroplasty, but it does avoid prosthetic complications. So total elbow arthroplasty is indicated for pain, loss of motion, and instability. As far as the technique, a semi-constrained device has the best results. And as far as outcomes, total elbow arthroplasty is a reliable procedure for advanced rheumatoid arthritis of the elbow. However, patients will have a 5-pound single-arm weightlifting restriction. Moving on to shoulder conditions... Rheumatoid arthritis is the most prevalent form of an inflammatory process affecting the shoulder with greater than 90% developing shoulder symptoms. Shoulder conditions in rheumatoid arthritis are commonly associated with rotator cuff tears. As far as evaluation, classic radiographic findings include central glenoid wear, periarticular osteopenia, and cysts. Moving on to hip conditions in rheumatoid arthritis, the big one to be aware of is acetabuli. Moving on to knee conditions, operative options for rheumatoid arthritis patients include synovectomy of the knee and total knee arthroplasty. Synovectomy of the knee decreases pain and swelling, but does not alter or prevent radiographic progression and does not prevent the need for total knee arthroplasty in the future. Remember that normal synovium reforms, but degenerates to rheumatoid synovium over time, and range of motion in these patients is not improved. As far as total knee arthroplasty, Rheumatoid arthritis is considered an indication for resurfacing of the patella during total knee arthroplasty. Moving on to foot and toe conditions in rheumatoid arthritis, these tend to usually be bilateral and symmetric, the forefoot joints are the first to be affected, and keep in mind that these patients are human leukocyte antigen or HLA-DR4 positive. So the specific conditions to mention include toe hyperextension deformity and talonavicular arthritis. So as far as toe hyperextension deformity, the earliest manifestation of rheumatoid arthritis of the forefoot is synovitis of the MTP joints with eventual hyperextension deformity of the MTP joints, including distal migration of the forefoot pad, painful plantar callosities, and skin ulcerations over bony prominences. The treatment of toe hyperextension deformity is arthrodesis of the first MTP joint and lesser MTP joint resections talonavicular arthritis is common to have degenerative changes, and these patients are treated with effusion. Moving on to cervical conditions, these are present in 90% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, however the diagnosis is often missed. Cervical rheumatoid spondylitis includes three main patterns of instability, atlanoaxial subluxation, which is the most common form of instability, basilar invagination, and subaxial subluxation. Finally, let's end this review session talking about some complications. And the major one to be aware of is postoperative infection. History of prior surgical site infection is the most significant risk factor for development of another surgical site infection. As far as immunosuppressive therapy, the literature is controversial whether rheumatoid arthritis patients on immunosuppressive therapy have significantly increased infection rates for orthopedic procedures. Pharmacologic therapy may need to be changed prior to surgical interventions. Surgery should be performed when immunosuppressive agents are at their lowest levels. So again, etanercept should be discontinued two weeks prior to major surgical procedures. Rituximab should be held for seven months prior to major surgical procedures. Finally, note that the lowest level of infliximab is found two weeks prior to the next scheduled infusion. To end this review session, just a quick word on the prognosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Significant advances in pharmacologic management have led to a decrease in surgical intervention for rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 72-year-old female with rheumatoid arthritis is scheduled to undergo total hip arthroplasty. She presents for her preoperative visit and asks about dosing of her anti-rheumatic medications. She currently takes etanercept weekly and hydroxychloroquine daily. Which of the following is the best dosing recommendation for her anti-rheumatic medications prior to surgery? And the choices are 1. Continue hydroxychloroquine and etanercept. 2. Hold hydroxychloroquine one week prior to surgery and continue etanercept. 3. Continue hydroxychloroquine and hold etanercept 1 week prior to surgery. 4. Continue hydroxychloroquine and hold etanercept 2 weeks prior to surgery. And 5. Hold hydroxychloroquine and etanercept for 2 weeks prior to surgery. The correct answer to this question is 4. Continue hydroxychloroquine and hold etanercept 2 weeks prior to surgery. So the 2017 American College of Rheumatology slash the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons guideline for the perioperative management of antirheumatic medication states that hydroxychloroquine can be continued and etanercept should be held for two weeks prior to undergoing total hip arthroplasty. To quickly review, patients with rheumatoid arthritis report high satisfaction following hip or knee replacement despite the higher rates of infection, dislocation, and readmission rates. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis may present on a variety of different biologic and non-biologic medications used to control their systemic rheumatoid arthritis. Optimal preoperative management of these immunosuppressant medications may help mitigate some of the risks of postoperative complications in rheumatoid arthritis patients. Moving on to the next question. In the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, which medication is an antagonist of tumor necrosis factor alpha? And the choices are 1, rituximab, 2, etanercept, 3, abatacept, 4, methotrexate, and 5, leflunomide. The correct answer to this question is 2, etanercept. So etanercept is a biochemically designed tumor necrosis factor receptor immunoglobulin G-fusion protein which binds to TNF-alpha and is thus a TNF-alpha antagonist. To quickly review, TNF-alpha is considered to be one of the major cytokines involved in rheumatoid arthritis pathology. As a result, many biologic agents used to treat rheumatoid arthritis are manufactured to block TNF-alpha, or its receptors. This has been shown to reduce inflammation and stop disease progression. In the United States, Etanercept is approved to treat rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and psoriatic arthritis, plaque psoriasis, and ankylosing spondylitis. The route of admission is subcutaneous. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, rituximab is incorrect, as rituximab is a monoclonal antibody to CD20 antigen and inhibits B cells, It is often used with good clinical outcomes as monotherapy in patients who are intolerant of methotrexate or have contraindications to methotrexate or other disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Answer 3, abatacept is incorrect, as abatacept is a selective co-stimulation modulator that binds to CD80 and CD86 and subsequently inhibits T-cells. It is often prescribed for treatment of moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis or after failure of a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic agent like methotrexate, but it can be used as first-line therapy. Answer 4, methotrexate is incorrect, as methotrexate is a folic acid analog. It binds dihydrofolate reductase and prevents synthesis of tetrahydrofolate. It is usually a first-line treatment for moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis. And answer five, liflunamide is incorrect, as leflunomide is an inhibitor of pyrimidine synthesis. It is approved to treat adult moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis, usually as a monotherapy or failure of other DMARDs. Moving on to the next question. Regarding bone erosion and rheumatoid arthritis, which of the following statements is true? And the choices are one, interference with wind signaling may reduce bone erosion. 2. TNF and IL-6 blockade leads to slowing of bone erosion. 3. The extent of bone erosion is independent of the extent of synovitis. 4. MCSF and RANK-L stimulate bone resorption by synovial fibroblasts. And 5. The presence of serum anti-citrullinated protein antibodies is predictive of the extent of synovitis but not bone erosion. The correct answer to this question is 2, TNF and IL-6 blockade leads to slowing of bone erosion. So TNF, IL-1, and IL-6 receptor blockade helps to slow-slash-arrest bone erosion in rheumatoid arthritis and is also effective in reducing synovitis. To quickly review, cytokines TNF, IL-1, and IL-6 are key players in rheumatoid arthritis. TNF stimulates migration of osteoclast precursors from the bone marrow into the periphery and stimulates expression of surface receptors to facilitate differentiation. In the joint, MCSF and rank L stimulate differentiation towards osteoclasts. Final differentiation into bone-resorbing osteoclasts is achieved following contact with the bone surface. Moving on to the next question the perioperative use of which medication has been shown to increase the risk of postoperative infection following orthopedic procedures in patients with rheumatoid arthritis? And the choices are 1. Naproxen, 2. Liflunamide, 3. sulfasalazine; 4. Etanercept, and 5. Aspirin. The correct answer to this question is 4. Etanercept. So of the medications listed, only etanercept has been shown to increase the risk of postoperative infection following orthopedic procedures in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Again, etanercept is a TNF-alpha antagonist with a short half-life that is administered once or twice weekly in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Since TNF-alpha plays a central role in the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis and is instrumental in causing joint destruction, the inhibition of this molecule has shown excellent results in controlling disease. The most powered study on TNF-alpha inhibitor use in the perioperative period following an orthopedic procedure demonstrated a significant increase in postoperative infection. Moving on to the next question, infliximab is a medication associated with opportunistic infections in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. What is the mechanism of action of infliximab? And the choices are 1. Inhibition of dihydrofolate reductase, 2. Monoclonal antibody against CD20 on B-cell surface, 3. Tumor necrosis factor inhibitor, 4. Calcineurin inhibitor, and 5. Glucocorticoid receptor agonist. The correct answer to this question is 3. Tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. So infliximab is a tumor necrosis factor inhibitor. Infliximab was designed to modify the host immune response in rheumatoid arthritis. It acts to neutralize both extracellular and membrane forms of TNF, which is a cytokine considered to be of major importance in the pathophysiology of rheumatoid arthritis. Complications with this medication include increased risk of opportunistic infection and dose-dependent increased risk of malignancies in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Moving on to the next question, Which of the following is more likely to occur following a total knee arthroplasty without patellar resurfacing versus a total knee arthroplasty with patellar resurfacing in patients with rheumatoid arthritis? And the choices are 1. Patellar dislocation, 2. Anterior knee pain, 3. Extensor tendon rupture, 4. Decreased quadriceps strength, and 5. Patellar clunk syndrome. The correct answer to this question is 2. Anterior knee pain. So patients with rheumatoid arthritis who undergo a total knee arthroplasty without patellar resurfacing are more likely to have anterior knee pain when compared to the same patient population with resurfaced patellas. To quickly review, resurfacing the patella during total knee arthroplasty is a topic of controversy. Those against resurfacing note minimal issues with patellar tilt and overstuffing the patellofemoral joint. Supporters of resurfacing state that the patellofemoral joint will eventually become arthritic if not resurfaced and that the rate of anterior knee pain is much higher. Multiple studies, however, have shown superior results in patients with rheumatoid arthritis that have had their patella resurfaced. Moving on to the next question, A 66-year-old woman with known poorly controlled rheumatoid arthritis reports that for the past four weeks, she has been unable to extend the metacarpal phalangeal joints of her right hand, index, middle, ring, and little fingers. She cannot hyperextend the thumb interphalangeal joint. Active wrist extension is possible, but shows radial deviation. Examination reveals mild synovitis at the wrist and MCP joints of the affected hand. There is no ulnar deviation at the MCP joints with normal alignment. When the MCP joints are passively extended, the patient is unable to maintain them in this position. There is no piano key sign at the distal ulna. Passive wrist motion shows a normal tenodesis effect. Which of the following would most likely confirm your diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Radiographs of the hand. 2. Radiographs of the cervical spine. 3. Electrodiagnostic studies of the affected upper extremity. 4. Surgical exploration of the extensor tendon ruptures. And 5. MRI of the elbow. The correct answer to this question is 3. Electrodiagnostic studies of the affected upper extremity. So there are many causes of inability to extend the MCP joints in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis. The most common cause is rupture of the extensor tendons. An intact tenodesis test suggests that the extensor tendons are intact, the surgical exploration is not indicated and would not confirm the diagnosis. The patient has normal alignment of the fingers without ulnar deviation, suggesting that there are no MCP dislocations to account for the inability to extend the MCP joints. Therefore, radiographs would not confirm the diagnosis. The most likely cause of inability to extend the fingers in this patient is posterior interosseous nerve, or PIN palsy. Electrodiagnostic studies would confirm the presence of PIN palsy. An MRI of the elbow may show synovitis at the radiocapitellar joint, which can cause the PIN palsy. This finding, however, is nonspecific, and many patients without PIN palsy would also demonstrate synovitis at the radiocapitellar joint. Therefore, although an MRI would be helpful in localizing a potential cause of PIN compression, it would not in itself confirm the diagnosis. Moving on to the next question, a 65-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis is unable to actively extend her index, middle, ring, and little fingers secondary to tendon rupture. In performing a flexor digitorum sublimus of the middle slash ring finger to extensor digitorum commonus transfer to restore active metacarpophalangeal joint extension, the FDS should be passed. And the choices are one, ulnarly around the ulna in a dorsal direction, two, radially around the radius in a dorsal direction, three, through the interosseous membrane, four, through the intermetacarpal spaces between the index, middle, ring, and little fingers, and five, through the lumbrical canals of the index, middle, ring, and little fingers. The correct answer to this question is two, radially around the radius in a dorsal direction. So although the early use of FDS as a transfer to restore finger extension in patients with radial nerve palsy was performed by passing the tendon through the interosseous membrane, Nailbuff and Patel later modified this procedure for the rheumatoid arthritis patient by passing the FDS radially around the radius in a dorsal direction. They felt that this provided a number of advantages, including 1. Technical ease, 2. Avoidance of synovial disease on the dorsum of the wrist, And three, correction of ulnar deviation of the fingers through the line of pull from the radial side of the forearm. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following medications when combined with methotrexate has been shown to be more effective than methotrexate alone in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis? And the choices are one, nitrofurantoin. Two, rifampin. Three, azithromycin. Four, erythromycin and 5-doxycycline. The correct answer to this question is 5-doxycycline. So tetracycline was initially used in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis because mycoplasma was thought to be the causative agent. It was later found that tetracyclines have biologic effects on the inflammatory and immunologic cascade by inhibiting collagenase activity collagenase is an enzyme involved in breaking down macromolecules in the connective tissue contributing to the pathologic changes of rheumatoid arthritis. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following drugs is an IL-1 antagonist typically used as a second-line agent in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis? And the choices are 1, anakinra, 2, methotrexate, 3, Leflunomide. 4, adalibumab, and 5, etanercept. The correct answer to this question is 1, anakinra. So IL-1 receptor antagonist is a naturally occurring molecule that blocks the biologic effects of the pro-inflammatory cytokine IL-1 a recombinant form of IL-1 receptor antagonist Anakinra is used to manage rheumatoid arthritis patients who are refractory to more conventional forms of treatment. Methotrexate and laflunamide are DMARDs and are typically prescribed if low-dose corticosteroids are ineffective. Adalibumab and Etanercept are both TNF-alpha blockers. Moving on to the next question. Von Jackson syndrome in rheumatoid arthritis is best described as and the choices are 1. Cranial migration of the dens from soft tissue erosion and bone loss between the occiput and C1 and C2. 2. Rupture of flexor pollicis longus in the carpal tunnel. 3. Synovitis in the DRUJ, leading to supination of carpal bones away from the head of the ulna. 4. Rupture of the hand digital extensor tendons and five, synovitis of the MTP joints with eventual hyperextension deformity of the MTP. The correct answer to this question is four, rupture of the hand digital extensor tendons. So von Jackson syndrome describes the rupture of the hand digital extensor tendons, which start on the ulnar side of the wrist first and then move radially. This is thought to occur from DRUJ instability, resulting in dorsal prominence of the ulnar head, leading to an attritional rupture of the extensor tendons. Extensor digiti minimi is the extensor tendon commonly ruptured. Von Jackson first described the condition in his case report in JBJS in 1948. Moving on to the next question, which of the following biologic agents commonly used to treat rheumatoid arthritis does not target tumor necrosis factor alpha? And the choices are 1, infliximab, 2, rituximab, 3, etanercept, 4, golimumab, and 5, adalimumab. The correct answer to this question is 2, rituximab. So rituximab is a chimeric monoclonal antibody against the protein CD20, which is primarily found on the surface of immune system B cells. Rituximab is used in combination with methotrexate to treat rheumatoid arthritis that has not responded to one or more types of treatment, including anti-tumor necrosis factor blockers. In rheumatoid arthritis and other chronic inflammatory conditions, cytokines produced by activated T-cells slash macrophages contribute to the pro-inflammatory state. TNF-alpha is thought to be one of the major cytokines involved in rheumatoid arthritis pathology. As a result, many biologic agents used to treat rheumatoid arthritis are directed towards blocking TNF-alpha or its receptors. These drugs are able to reduce inflammation and stop disease progression. Moving on to the next question, which immunoglobulin subtype does the rheumatoid factor target? And the choices are 1. IgA, 2. IgE, 3. IgM, 4. IgG, And 5. Rheumatoid factor does not target an immunoglobulin. The correct answer to this question is 4. IgG. So rheumatoid factor is an autoantibody most commonly seen with rheumatoid arthritis. The presence of rheumatoid factor can also indicate generalized autoimmune activity unrelated to rheumatoid arthritis, for example, tissue or organ rejection. Rheumatoid factor is itself an IgM antibody that is directed against the FC portion of the IgG antibody. Rheumatoid factor, or IgM, attaches to the IgG to form immune complexes which are deposited in tissues like the kidney and contribute to the overall disease process in rheumatoid arthritis. Moving on to the next question. A patient with rheumatoid arthritis has a rupture of the extensor digitorum commonus to 4 and 5 you are planning to perform an extensor indices proprius or EIP tendon transfer. What effect will this have on index finger extension? And the choices are one, no effect, two, index finger weakness, three, index metacarpal phalangeal hyperextension, four, index metacarpal phalangeal hyperflexion, and five, index metacarpal phalangeal ulnar deviation. The correct answer to this question is one, no effect. So EIP transfer results in no functional deficit. If the tendon is cut proximal to the sagittal band, there will be no extensor deficit. Moving on to the next question. In a patient with rheumatoid arthritis of the wrist, which of the following extensor tendons is most at risk of rupture? And the choices are one, extensor digiti quinti, two, abductor pollicis longus, 3. extensor pollicis longus, 4. extensor carpi radialis brevis, and 5. extensor carpi ulnaris. The correct answer to this question is 1. extensor digiti quinti. So the tendon most prone to rupture in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis of the wrist is the extensor digiti quinti. It can be a silent injury since the extensor digitorum commonis can provide extension to the fifth finger. The extensor digiti quinti is at high risk since it's overlying the ulnar head where it's prone to attritional rupture, like that seen in Von Jackson syndrome. Moving on to the next question What percent of adult patients with rheumatoid arthritis test positive for rheumatoid factor? And the choices are 1 less than 20%, 2 20 to 40% three, 50%, four, 80 to 90%, and five, more than 95%. The correct answer to this question is four, 80 to 90%. So rheumatoid factor is present in 80 to 90% of adult patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Although rheumatoid factor is very sensitive, it is not very specific. Anti-nuclear antibodies or ANA can be detected in 30 to 40% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Moving on to the next question: What is the most important consideration in the preoperative evaluation of a child with polyarticular or systemic juvenile rheumatoid arthritis? And the choices are one, cervical spine assessment; two, temporomandibular joint or TMJ slash jaw assessment; three, dental assessment. 4. Stress dosing with corticosteroids, and 5. Ophthalmology examination. The correct answer to this question is 1. Cervical spine assessment. So the cervical spine may be involved in a child with polyarticular or systemic juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Fusion or instability can occur. Radiographic assessment of the cervical spine should include lateral flexion extension views. The potential exists for spinal cord injury during intubation or positioning in the presence of an unstable cervical spine. Limitations of the TMJ and micronathia may affect ease of intubation and administration of anesthesia via a mask. If the TMJ and jaw are involved, some patients may have dental findings such as dental caries and even abscesses which can affect surgery. Some children, particularly those with systemic arthritis, may be taking corticosteroids long term and may need stress dosing with complex surgeries. Although it's important to routinely check for uveitis and iritis in children with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, this usually is not needed preoperatively. Uveitis and iritis are less likely in a child with systemic juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And moving on to the final question, All of the following are characteristic of synovium affected by rheumatoid arthritis except, and the choices are 1. Prominent intimal hyperplasia, 2. Decreased apoptosis, 3. Increased angiogenesis, 4. Disruption of the basement membrane, and 5. Abundant lymphocytes. The correct answer to this question is 4. Disruption of the basement membrane so the basement membrane is not disrupted in rheumatoid arthritis-affected synovial tissue as synovium lacks a true basement membrane. Normal synovium consists of two layers, the intimal and the sublining, and two types of cells, type A and type B. In rheumatoid arthritis, the following changes to the synovium are seen. One, hyperplasia, with the intimal lining increasing from two cell layers to 10 to 20 layers. Two, decreased apoptosis of the lining. 3 increased angiogenesis and 4 abundant lymphocytes around vessels forming lymphoid follicles. The synovial pannus is invasive granulation tissue that contains fibroblast-like synoviocytes but few inflammatory cells. The synovial cells in the pannus have anchorage-independent growth and invasive capabilities, allowing them to directly attack and destroy articular cartilage. That's all for this review about rheumatoid arthritis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.